The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Welcome to The Hearing with me, Kevin Poulter. In each episode, I chat with some of the most interesting characters in and around the legal profession. You'll hear about their lives, their passions, and their relationship with the law. In this episode, I'm joined by Karen Jackson. Karen is a former city trader who now runs one of the UK's leading discrimination practices, Didlaw, which focuses on disability and mental health at work. She tells us how her company was formed while she was recovering from a heart transplant and how she's challenging employers, the legal profession and the law 10 years on. The Hearing. Karen, lovely to meet you at last. I feel like we've known each other a while already, but only through social media. I know. I feel the same way. It's, you know, people say, do you know so-and-so? And I, and I think, no, but yes. Uh, I was at a function last night where I met maybe six or eight people mm. who I feel I've known for ages. But I've never actually met them. We, uh, have a, we have a Twitter relationship. This is it. And, and um, uh, I think it's fair to say we both perhaps put ourselves around a little bit mm-hmm. uh, where the media is concerned. <laughs> and so similarly, I've, I've seen you and, and yet we've never actually met or spoken. So uh, it's a pleasure to meet you along us. We're talking about the law, but that isn't where you started out. No, it's not. It's where I should have started out, but I didn't quite start in the right way. Or actually, I'm glad that I went to law in a, ra- in a roundabout way. Okay. I think it's made me a better lawyer. You need to explain that to us. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I graduated and all my friends had done milk rounds and, you know, got jobs, I just really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Okay. I had three options in mind. One was to stay at UCL and be an academic, and I had applied for a PhD and got a grant. And what, did, what were you doing at UCL? So I did French. French oh, was my first degree. Okay. That was my first passion in life was, was French. I started learning it when I was eight um, and was determined that was what I would read at university mm. and did. Absolutely loved it. Mm. So that was an option, stay on. Um, the other was to be a teacher. I thought about that, doing mm. something noble, and, you know, I, I'd done doing really that. well out of having great teachers, and it, you know, really changed my life. But I was a little bit put off by having to deal with children and discipline. <laughs> Didn't really fancy that so much. And the third option was, was to be a lawyer, um, at which point my parents were kind of like, really, you've been at university for four years, mm. you know, why don't you go and get a job? So mm. I thought, look, I'm going to go and get a job, okay. a job. And the aim was to go to law school, you know, get a job, get some money behind me and go yeah. back to law school. So my first port of call, obviously, was to look at the city because I thought, well, I can earn the most there yeah. and stash the money and get back to doing what I really want to do. Um, and I got into uh, my first city job because of my French. They wanted a French speaker okay. on the sales team. Yeah. And very quickly, I went from being in a, in a back office to working on the life floor. So the London International Financial Futures Exchange standing on the floor screaming arms in the air hand signals all of that stuff very exciting most money I've ever been paid for not doing very much at all <laughs> other than the 10 minutes when the markets were going bananas um, but yeah so that's how I that's how I started my working life yeah um, and then uh, I had an opportunity to be made redundant and took it and went to law school at the same time I'd, I'd also met my future husband um, and he was saying to me, you, you really need to go and do law. It's what you want to do. Mm. Um, and he was really pushing me and encouraging me to go and do it. So I thought, well, why not? Let's so, so where did this sort of desire for the law come from? Uh, do you have family in law? I'm always curious to know. No, no family in the law at all. I think it, it really, without sounding really pompous, <laughs> I've always had a natural sense of justice mm. and um, a real interest in helping 
protecting the underdog. So like mm. at school, if somebody was being bullied, I would be, you know, I was a really puny kid, but I would always pile in and be mm. like, what are you doing? Mm. And, you know, if we had a kid at school who was a bit different to everybody else, who, was, who people were being nasty to, I would go and be their friend. Mm. And so I've always had that kind of wanting to make things better for people um, and that's really where my, where the law thing came in yeah. coupled with the fact that I love words and I love writing and you know the idea of being paid to write was mm. just fantastic and just mental stimulation you know just there's yeah. not really ever a right answer mm. um, it's I just wanted something my, my attention span is quite short so I just wanted something that would I would never be bored with and that's why I chose employment uh, so when did that come about before you went to law school or uh, no when later? I I mean I was I was at law school I took a module on employment law yeah. uh, I loved criminal Okay. I, I loved criminal. Well, that goes back to the sort of justice yes. idea. But then I realised I probably wasn't going to be very good in the police station or looking at pictures of victims and things like that. I yeah. just thought that's not really too squeamish. Um, and so I wanted to do something that had a people angle mm. more, more specifically. Uh, so I thought about family and I thought mm, maybe a bit messy. Um, employment... I did quite a lot of employment um, when I was at, at L'Oreal and I was doing my initial uh, couple of years at L'Oreal were while I was doing my training and my training contracts. So, so let me pause you there for a second. Yeah. We've not quite got to L'Oreal yet. Okay. But so, so when did that fit in? Uh, so you went to law school yes. and then well, you needed a training contract, it, I guess. Well, it was, it was a bit of an overlap because I, in the sort of, I'm going to say June time, decided I was going to go to law school. Mm. Then I had to scramble to see who could take me in September because, yeah. of course, they'd done all their intakes. Of course. But I found um, London Met said, we can take you in September. So I was like, done. Right. Um, and the next thing I did was to go and try and find a job for the summer, which I did at L'Oreal. Wow. Again with my French. Yeah. And by some weird coincidence, and I believe in weird coincidence, mm. I was working in the corporate department and got quite chatty with the legal uh, director there, told her what I was doing. And she said, oh, well, you know, why don't you therefore come and work for me and do your um, law degree part time wow. and you can work and learn at the same yeah, time, which was fantastic because she was amazing. Um, she's a really good teacher, very strict, but mm. she was a really good teacher and taught me how to write some pretty wicked letters. Um, but I would be in law school and then I would be the next day, you know, actually doing work. So it was a really good combination and much better for me because I didn't want to go back to being a full-time student yeah. having already worked. But still, that's a really tough thing to do. I know I've got friends who've done the similar route and to work during the day and then study at night, it's, that's challenging. It was hard, but I think when you're driven and you just really want to do something and mm. you have your eye on a, on the end game, yeah. It's, yeah. it makes it easier. I have to tell you, on a Thursday, night at about half past eight I would invariably get really bad giggles in my class <laughs> you know and you're just completely overdone yeah. and you're tired and you just start behaving but really badly I but guess coming from the world of work rather than the world of being a student uh, you've already got that ethic I guess in place yeah. more so maybe than being a student uh, yeah not, I'm sure there are very studious people out there <laughs> at the university but I know for myself that works very different yes but also I love studying you know I love to be I love studying mm. and I'm really quite square and so for example after I had my transplant we can talk about that if you want to but after I had my transplant and I wasn't working I was like what am I going to do you know mm. and I and I qualified as a notary because I wanted to do something so I spent two years doing that so I quite like being a student 
Okay, so you've dropped the trail now for, for later. Um, but uh, so, so L'Oreal studying then, did they offer you a training contract to? They couldn't train me in the house because my um, training principal wasn't UK qualified. So uh, she'd been seconded from the US. Uh, um, but uh, the hookup with Michigan de Rea, which is where I did my training contract, was via L'Oreal because okay. there was a connection there. So this is like so, fallen into place. Yeah, <laughs> as I said to you, I believe in, you know, lucky breaks and yeah. happy coincidences. I mean, it, it, it did work out really, really well. But, but French seems to be the theme yes. uh, that's run through all of this. That's what's given you that break. Yes, uh, yeah, uh, weirdly and, enough. Yeah, and you're still, you're, I'm struggling to work out how you do that now so much uh, as an employment lawyer. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I don't get to use my French so much. No. Um, I've, I've got a case on at the moment and I'm quite regularly speaking to a Swiss lawyer and I get to show off my French then, which is which is quite fun. But mm. on a day-to-day level, I don't get much call no. for it. No. Um, a holiday home in France, maybe? Not yet, no, okay, but it's in the pipeline. Good, <laughs> it's good. where every uh, holiday is. <laughs> <laughs> so L'Oreal, uh, Michicons, uh, presumably did an employment seat and the training contract. Yes. Uh, so is that what's driven the employment? I know we talked a bit about university, but it's one thing studying it academically. It's another thing being in practice. Yeah, I mean, I think of all the seats I did um, in my training contract, I did property litigation, mm. which I absolutely loved. So litigation was a sort of key really? um, thing. Yeah. And then um, I did a commercial seat and I did an employment seat. But a lot of the work I did at L'Oreal was around employment because mm. we had lots of employees and we also had lots of different kinds of employees across mm. lots of different sites. Um, so I'd already got a real taste for dealing with it. And, and also the fact that, yes, it's the law, but it's also people. And, you know, yeah. it, sometimes it doesn't really matter what the law is. You've got to deal with people and that can be difficult. Yeah. And uh, so working with L'Oreal, you've had that commercial experience as well alongside the legal, which sometimes, particularly in employment law, they, they don't always sit too well together. No. So... You went back to L'Oreal after qualifying? Yes. Uh, for how long was that? Um, it wasn't very long. It was only about, I'm going to say about 18 months. Mm. Um, so I went back in straight into the role of head of legal wow. for UK and Ireland. And I did, I did everything from competition law, advertising and marketing. Um, we did M&A. Um, we, we did just about everything. And how was that working with other people? Because you, you, you're fresh, literally freshly qualified solicitor yeah. and you're the head of legal yeah. for L'Oreal. How did people treat you? Um, it was, I mean, I guess because I'd been there before during my training, mm. um, I was kind of, you know, people knew who, who I was. Mm. Um, but I think L'Oreal is a very um, meritocratic organization and people don't tend to judge you on how old you are or because you I'd be working with directors in other parts of the business who were really really young but they were just good and it it wasn't a sort of you don't look old enough to have that job yeah but from your point of view was any sort of of imposter syndrome uh, oh all the time (laughs) okay good I'm (laughs) really pleased you said that because this is just incredible (laughs) every morning I'd be like really (laughs) am I doing this job um it was a massive job it was a big challenge And every day, you know, I thought, you know, what is going to happen today and what am I going to be looking at? But I do like to be pushed and I do like a challenge. Mm. But yeah, definitely imposter syndrome, <laughs> you know, every and day. Did you have somebody to bounce things around with? Um, or were you very much on your own there? I was on my own a lot. And um, it, there, was a, there was a sense in which we didn't want to instruct external lawyers unless we had to. Yeah. So there was quite a lot of, you know, flying by the seat of your pants, mm. um, which again, I quite I quite like. And mm. I'm, but I'm also 
um, sensible enough and square enough to know that there are certain times when you just can't wing yeah. it and you have yeah. to, you know, take advice. But I worked with um, a couple of external firms and and lawyers who, you know, when I was having a tricky moment, I could ring up and go, mm. what do you think about this? So I wasn't completely on my own. Yeah. Um, although in terms of sort of the UK, there wasn't anybody I could bounce within the company. Mm. Obviously, I had a um, head of legal in um, in Paris, but they didn't know the UK law either, so English law. So, um, yeah, it was daring, but I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I chose to go in-house because I wanted to be in a very commercial organisation rather than in a in private practice. Mm. But I also thought that being in-house might be an easier option in terms of work-life balance. Yeah. And I was well, wrong about but, that. But presumably something <laughs> changed because you're now here uh, in your own firm in private practice. Yes. Uh, what, what changed? Um, I got really ill. Um, oh. I got really sick. So um, I had always known that I had a heart problem that mm. I inherited from my mother. Okay. So I'd known I'd had it since I was nine years old. And I'd had a few rough... Uh, run-ins with with health along the way. Mm. I had a stroke in a job interview when I was oh. 22, and I had my heart stopped and started a few times. Um, wow. I think I've been in every A and E department in a London hospital, <laughs> um, but made it, claim. but made it out through the other side. Um, so I started to get uh, started to get really substantially ill, and then was told I was going into heart failure. And knew that I just was not going to be able to carry on working. Mm. Although I did carry on working up to the point where I was sort of passing out. And I thought, well, I probably need to stop working now. Um, And was told very, very quickly that um, either I need to have a heart transplant or I would be dead by Christmas kind of thing. So it was a rude awakening. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I had to take time off work, which I didn't like doing because I do love working. Mm. But... Yeah, big decision. Wasn't so sure whether I wanted to have a transplant or not. Thought it was a bit strange. Mm. My husband said, don't be ridiculous. If you don't, you'll die. So why not? Yeah, don't have much choice. No. (laughs) Thanks to him, I made the right decision. Um, So I had a lot of time to think then. While I was waiting for my heart, uh, mm. and I was thinking, will I go back to that job? Mm. And I thought, actually, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to do something different. And L'Oreal were very good to me. But I thought, I'm going to start my own business, and I'm going to do employment, and I'm going to do something around health and um, employment because... One, I know what it's like to try and match the two up if you're not well and you mm. don't want to tell people and all the rest of it. So the change in perspective really came before the transplant, yes. but sort of in the lead up to it. Yes. And, and, and presumably like, there's a long recovery. I imagine there's a long recovery time. There is some people. I mean, I was so ill before my transplant right. that I became very weak and I was really thin and mm. I mean, I wasted away. Mm. Some people get the transplant very quickly and are in and out of hospital in a week or two weeks. I, my recovery was quite long and I was told it would probably be two years before you're completely back to full health. You know, wow. I, my, all my muscles had wasted away and I was really... Yeah really puny and pathetic um so i don't I look had... at me when you say that <laughs> no i wasn't i promise puny and pathetic. Thanks. <laughs> but it, i had a lot of time to think and i spent a lot of time think you know thinking what's my concept what do i want to do what's my business look like um and around that time was one of the first big uh, decisions from the high court around stress at work mm-hmm. and the employer responsibility for stress and i thought that's a huge area um and that kind of became the primary focus, sort of mental health mm. um, issues. 
rather than physical yeah. um, health issues because it's such a problem um, and so many people suffer. So what, what year is this? I had my transplant in 2006 and right. so 2007, 2008, mm. I'm thinking about my concept and making masses of to-do lists and checking out how to become VAT registered and I mean lists and lists and lists and lists and I decided that I would start on the 1st of October when the renewal period starts for the vaccine certificate certificate and (laughs) (laughs) for the uh, insurance tidy minded yeah and so I was aiming at at that being my start date Um, and it was and we're 10 years old in October well congratulations with that Um, but presumably from small beginnings um, setting up on your own is no mean feat for anyone but especially having not previously worked apart from during the training contract in private practice how did you go about of getting to grips with everything that needs to be done? Well, it was sort of the story of my life, really, which is kind of make it up as you go along. Um, <laughs> okay, the SRE aren't listening. Right? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I like a challenge. And I thought, you know, um, I did go to a lot of uh, seminars at the Law Society and I read loads of books on, you know, setting up your own practice. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm very organised. I'm very methodical. And I just, you know, thought everything through and made sure everything was absolutely tickety-boo. Um you know, opening the doors, literally, I was like, okay, I've got a computer and a phone mm. and uh, no clients. And did you start at um, home? Or I started at home for six months right. and then I decided I needed an, a PA. Yeah. So then I moved to a small office and then we had a couple of office moves. And yeah, just just sort of went like that, really. And I established quite early on some relationships with some barristers yeah. who I could call and run ideas past. Um and uh, as soon as I could afford to get PLC, I signed up because that was a <laughs> lifeline. Because that was an unintended plug. It uh, was but, an unintended but, uh, plug, but uh, one that is really merited because it has been, um, it has been fantastic. And and you mentioned there about having some biases to call up. I find with employment law particularly, and we talk about the sense of justice that's run through uh, your whole career. But when it comes to employment law, it's not quite black and white. I find uh, in, in many things. Having somebody to talk to, presumably as your other firm's grown, that's been more useful for you? Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, for me, the great thing about employment is you never really feel like you get on top of it. It's mm. vast. So, yeah. I mean, you know, most weeks there'll be a question where I think, oh, I don't know the answer. How am yeah. I going to find out? Where am I going to look that up? Or who am I going to ask? Yeah. Um, and in the early days, I really did miss having somebody I could go, hey, what do you think about this? Mm. Because so many things are not... You know, that's the right answer. You know, it's it's all a bit grey. Yeah, and it, and it changes overnight. Yes, exactly. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I love the fact that there's a constant... You know, I, I, I always hear a different sort of iteration of a situation. It's not like you have a, every situation is the same. There's always yeah. some minor difference. Yeah. Um, you just can't... You know, you, you you can't have a stock answer for mm. anything because mm. it depends on the people, it depends on the company, the size of the company. Um, there's just so many different uh, nuances. And, and you mentioned in the training contract you enjoyed property litigation. Um, does that put you on the side of a litigator or are you more conciliatory when you're doing employment work? How, where do you fit on that spectrum? 
Well, interestingly, I always categorise myself as a lover, not a fighter. I mean, I'm, I'm, I do think that for most disputes, there is a solution. And I do I do hold myself out as a problem solver. Yeah. I just was talking to a barrister about a case he wants to give me because he knows that I am very pro-settlement. Yeah. And that if there is a, any opportunity to resolve a dispute, I will take it. Mm. Having said that, if I'm pushed into a fight because somebody's being unreasonable or doesn't want to find a solution, yeah. then, you know, I grow horns and I go full on and, yeah. you know, I fight, I fight hard. And I'm not naturally an aggressive person, mm. but I, I can really be pushed to fight hard when I'm mm. fighting for a client, especially because a lot of my clients are really sick people mm. who would not have mm. the strength to fight for themselves, and that pushes me even more. And I think it sometimes depends on who you're up against, yeah. uh, the, the approach that they take. Yes. And, and, and I'm sure you've worked with um, some people who perhaps call themselves employment lawyers, but are maybe more litigators, yeah. and, and that's a difficult thing to, to deal with. Because yeah. it's a completely different approach, this, like you say, working towards settlement or working away from settlement and yeah. sort of taking your, your own corner. And does that approach change your relationships within the office as well, uh, or, or even at home? I think that if sometimes my husband will say to me, you know, um, I think you probably were a little bit aggressive then. And I'll say, that's because I've been fighting all day. <laughs> but, but this makes it more difficult because I think you work with your husband as well. Yes, I do. Yes, how, I do. How's that? Because it's that's... really great because there's nobody I trust more to, to run my practice mm. than him. And for the longest time, I realized that I was spending way too much time doing managey things that I didn't need to be doing or didn't want to be doing. And he's just a much better team leader mm. than I am. Um, and, you know, he's he's just very good at it. Mm. I think that he was concerned that he would come into the business and I would tell him what to do. Mm. What actually happened was I said, these are all your responsibilities, yeah. deal with it. And I only want to know if you need me. I think that's a difficult thing to do. I, I, I talk with lots of smaller businesses as well, um, but also lawyers. And as they're growing their firms, it's that handing over of trusting somebody to hand over that responsibility to. Yeah. Was that easier with it being your husband or was that more difficult? It was definitely easier on the practice management side of things. Yeah. Um, and we've got a really great finance person who takes care of all of that because, you know, you remember in the early days, I had, you know, five different hats. Yeah. I was BD, I was finance, I was practice manager, I was doing the work, mm. um, going out and finding the work. So for me to be able to hand off big chunks of that work has just been an absolute joy. And I'd, I think... They all think I'm a bit sort of lyrical when I say, oh, thank you so much for doing all the billing. But it's lovely that you don't have to do yeah. it, you know, yourself. I think that um, the harder transition is where a lot of the calls that come into the business are they want to speak to me and they want me yeah. to do their case. And I say, well, I can't do everybody's case. And I've got five other people that can. Yeah. And they're like, no, I want you. It's hard to get across to them that actually everybody in my team is somebody that I would trust to take care of my case. Yeah. And why do you think that is, that they come to you and, and want you? Um, I think it's because the nature of the referrals, you know, most of the referrals that we get our word of mouth and they come a lot of them come from doctors and psychiatrists so if you've been recommended somebody by name mm. by a person that you really trust then i think you know you you kind of maybe cling on to that a bit more mm. um, but it's becoming it's becoming easier to 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 sell in other members of my team mm. the biggest challenge by far has been to get the right people in my team yeah and how do you go about doing that we have recruited um 
through uh, Daniel Barnett's employment ah. <laughs> bulletin, yeah, yeah. we've we've used um, another plug. Another ah. plug. There you go, Daniel. You owe me a, bar- a beer. Um, yeah, and um, and just you know interviewing people, and it's really easy to get good lawyers they're, mm. they're, and, and good employment lawyers. Mm. There's lots of them. Um, it's also easy to find lots of really nice people who are good with people, mm. but finding people who are both of those things has been really, really difficult. Mm. And um, I'm just very particular and I can't have anybody in my business who doesn't completely get what mm. we are all about and trying to do. So the majority of work is claimant work, isn't yes. it? Yes. Uh, individuals. And how does that work out? Because you've got a very niche area in many respects. Yep. And uh, I want to talk, before we go on to that, just about the name. Yes. Because it must be tempting just to call yourself sort of Karen Jackson yes. uh, Associates, whatever it might be. Where did did law come from? Okay, so that w- that comes back to what we said earlier about putting yourself out mm. a bit. Um, I thought about um, the name, and I wanted something that was really a different from just a regular sort of law firm name, mm. um, but also wanted something that was going to be almost instantly recognizable for social media and for Google. So if you put did law into Google, mm. our page comes up first. If you put uh, Karen Jackson's lister into Google. There's lots of yeah. us. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> um, so it really it really was pushed by that sort of modern way of doing business. But at a time when social media was still relatively in its infancy, so that's quite forward thinking. Yeah, well, you see, I worked for L'Oreal, you know, uh, one yeah. of the greatest marketing companies branding, there is. Yeah. Branding is everything, and the thing I love about social media and about the internet is that it enables small businesses like mine mm. to compete yeah. and to get out there and to advertise yourself in a yeah. way that I could never have afforded to, to put out, you know, paper mm. ads in mm. in the Times or whatever. Um, so I got quite a lot of flack about the name in the in the early days. People were like, that's ridiculous. Sorry, who are you ringing from? Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know what? It, it means something. It means disability, illness, discrimination law. That's what we do. But also, it's really instantly recognisable, and uh, you know, people can find me yeah. and find the company easily. So it did the trick. Yeah, and so so you mentioned the sort of work that you do. Yes. But how's that evolved over the last ten years? We mostly do claimant work. Mm-hmm. We do we do work for employers as well, mm-hmm. um, and we do work across the spectrum um, of employment, which is which is massive. Mm-hmm. But we're really known for this niche around disability discrimination and. Really, that originates from my my business plan, which was I want to be the best known person mm. in the UK for disability discrimination law, mm. and I want to be at the forefront of argument around disability discrimination. And we're going to the Supreme Court in October, which is very exciting. Wow. So that that's where the focus always was. And mm. when I was first marketing the firm, I was going out and talking to doctors and, and psychiatrists, um, and that's where a lot of our referrals come from quite sad indictment of the lack of parity between physical and mental health Mm. is that I'd say about 85% of our clients are ill with depression, anxiety, um, PTSD, bipolar. We we very rarely act for people with other conditions. I mean, I have acted for people and do act for people who have cancer and Parkinson's and things like that. But... I think there's a general sense from me, based on the evidence of the cases, that employers are generally better at dealing with people who are blind or mobility impaired. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And and it's I think it is changing. And I think there's a lot more awareness now around uh, mental health disabilities and, and, and um, just, like you say, stress and anxiety issues. 
not just generally, but within the legal profession as well. Yeah. And, and that seems to be a real turning point. Yeah. Uh, have you had any involvement with that? I have. And, you know, I've been really heartened to see how much people are talking about it. Mm. Because when I started 10 years ago, nobody was talking about it yeah. at all. Yeah. So, you know, I got very excited in the last year or so. Yeah, I've seen more and more going on. And... Um, you know, there have been features in the Gazette. I wrote yeah. a short piece in the Law Society Gazette about how, as a profession, we're not very kind mm. to, you know, we, we're expected in a lot of the bigger firms to work unbearably long hours, yeah. you know, crazy billing targets. There are reasons why lawyers drink too much. Um, you know, we're not terribly aware as a profession, I would say. Um, and you know prone to stress and when I wrote that piece in the Gazette I had emails from people really sad emails Mm. from lawyers saying thank you for writing that piece in the Mm. Gazette because I go to work every morning feeling super anxious and I have nobody I can talk to about it and it was kind of like people coming out of the woodwork so things are changing I think you're right and particularly the junior lawyer end uh, where people don't necessarily have that voice or aren't able to speak out because of the pressure it's on them already and it just becomes this circle of just going round and round and and not knowing how to get out of it so I think it does make a big difference and it's great that people are talking about it now Uh, I'm conscious that we we might need to wrap up quite soon but I want to talk to you about other areas of discrimination law you're working with your husband and there's a lot of talk recently about relationship contracts uh, in the workplace and uh, declaring any new relationships now is this something you would even think about? Of course not. For you as your husband, he's coming into work. That was a done deal. But looking at it from the other way around, um, had you met at work, would you have maybe approached things in a slightly different way? I don't know. I've never thought about that because I did actually meet my husband at work. Of course, yeah. And, <laughs> um, back in the day when, not I, an issue. when I was working in the city. It wasn't an issue because we were working for different companies. Okay. Um, but I've certainly worked... Well, it could in be com- a bigger issue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, worked in diff- I've worked in other places where partners could not be partners. You know, one of the people had to leave mm. um, the business. And I, I kind of get that in some of the financial services type industries where, you know, you might be able to collude if you were yeah. in a relationship or whatever. But, I mean, I would, I would venture that an awful lot of people meet their their partner or lover at work because mm. where else do you meet them? Increasingly, <laughs> um, increasingly so, yeah. yeah. And there's always that fine line which is quite difficult with, with employment about, you know, how far... An employer is entitled to know what goes on in your in your private life, mm. and I'm really happy that people can be themselves at work. Mm. And there've been you know there's been massive progress about the whole LGBT yeah. agenda, which is wonderful, great stuff. Um, but where you know where is that line where you know you don't have to tell your employer absolutely everything about what's going on in your life yeah I, I think with the whole with the me too um, and harassment in the workplace as well I can see of course I can see the reasoning behind it but like you say it's, it's another pressure onto a relationship which yeah. is so difficult to come by these days anyway yeah. um, so I, I think that's going to be an interesting area that's going to develop over the next few years yeah. you're in the Supreme Court in October yes. but what else is coming up um, that's pretty much the big, the that's big thing. Yes, yeah. well, well, let's say looking in the crystal ball. The crystal what do you ball. foresee? Well, uh, either got, employment law yeah. or, or did law. Um, well, we've got our ten-year um, anniversary, which is which is definitely going to be what merit a, a bash. Um, yeah, Supreme Court um, in, in October. This will be the first time the Supreme Court has looked at Section 15 of the Equality Act in relation to employment and uh-huh. disability. Um, so that's very exciting. Yeah. One of the things I've wanted to do since the, the date of inception 
is not only to do the claimant work, but to also look at how can we, with our experience mm. of resolving disputes, how can we help employers around mental health at work and, and actually around preventing people getting ill at work. Um, so that's going to be a big push for us. And I've just um, hired somebody in to, to look at that at that piece yeah. so that, you know, eventually with the best will in the world, it would be nice to think that I never have to act as a claimant lawyer because the problems are resolved. That's way, way off in the future, but we're quite keen to look at that piece as well. Mm. Um, but, you know, my heart is 100% into David and Goliath and, and acting for the person against, you know, I'm acting against lots of major um, yeah. companies and, and just trying to rectify the wrongs that have been done, not always deliberately, yeah. um, but, yeah. you know, help people get to a better place. And I'm guessing you've seen a big ter- a big change since they abolished the, well, brought in initially and then abolished the tribunal fees. Is that something that's passed on to you? It has impacted the business in strange ways. Um, It didn't impact uh, the level uh, to which we were busy. We were always busy. Um, And to a certain extent, our clients are often... Um, you know, the, the tribunal fees didn't make us less busy mm. and, and the abolition of fees hasn't made us more busy. We've been constant. Mm. What it has changed, I think, is the attitude of employers to settling claims because when fees came in, I noticed that cases that I would ordinarily have settled quite easily mm. weren't settling. And it was because employers were saying, well, if you think you've got a good case, yeah. pay money yeah. Yeah. And, and then we'll see. Put the pressure up. Exactly. Yeah. So it definitely became harder um, to settle things. And it also became became harder for us to do um, the occasional case on a um, you know slightly altered fee arrangement. All of our work is, is privately paid, but every now and then we'd have a really good case mm. where the client really couldn't afford to do yeah. anything. And we'd say, look, let's try and get you something here. Yeah. Let's try yeah. and settle. But we wouldn't be able to fund your um, third-party fees. Yeah. So that prevented us taking on a few cases. Yeah. But um, I, I, I actually almost did a handstand when the when the fee decision came out. I was so delighted just mm. because of general access mm. to justice yeah. issues. Um, I just thought the whole idea was was terrible um, in the first place. Well, keep, look, keep fighting the good fight. And, <laughs> and, and I'm sure maybe, well, hopefully we won't come across each other professionally on the side <laughs> of the table. Uh, not too soon anyway. Uh, but thank you very much. Look, best wishes for everything in the in the next few months now. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.